Section 27 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 27. Johnson had not observed that I was in the room. I followed him, however, and he agreed to meet me in the evening at the mitre. I called on him, and we went thither at nine. We had a good supper, and port wine, of which he then sometimes drank a bottle. The orthodox high church sound of the mitre, the figure and manner of the celebrated Samuel Johnson, the extraordinary power and precision of his conversation, and the pride arising from finding myself admitted as his companion, produced a variety of sensations, and a pleasing elevation of mind beyond what I had ever before experienced. I find in my journal the following minutia of our conversation, which, though it will give but a very faint notion of what passed, is in some degree a valuable record, and it will be curious in this view, as showing how habitual to his mind were some opinions which appear in his works. Colley Sibber, sir, was no means a blockhead, but by arrogating himself too much, he was in danger of losing that degree of estimation to which he was entitled. His friends gave out that he intended his birthday ode should be bad, but that was not the case, sir, for he kept them many months by him, and a few years before he died he showed me one of them, with great solicitude to render it as perfect as might be, and I made some corrections, to which he was not very willing to submit. I remember the following couplet in allusion to the king himself. Perched on the eagle's soaring wing, thy lowly linnet loves to sing. Sir, he had heard something of the fabulous tale of the wren sitting upon the eagle's wing, and he had applied it to a linnet. Gibber's familiar style, however, was better than that which Whitehead has assumed. Grand nonsense is insupportable. Whitehead is but a little man to inscribe verses to players. I did not presume to controvert this censure, which was tinctured with his prejudice against players, but I could not help thinking that a dramatic poet might, with propriety, pay a compliment to an eminent performer, as Whitehead has very happily done in his verses to Mr. Garrick. Sir, I do not think Gray a first-rate poet. He has not a bold imagination, nor much command of words. The obscurity in which he has involved himself will not persuade us that he is sublime. His elegy in a churchyard has a happy selection of images, but I don't like what are called his great things. His ode, which begins, Ruin seize thee, ruthless king, confusion on thy banner's weight, has been celebrated for its abruptness, and plunging into the subject all at once. But such arts as these have no merit, unless when they are original. We admire them only once, and this abruptness has nothing new in it. We have had it often before. Nay, we have it in the old song of Johnny Armstrong, Is there ever a man in Scotland, from the highest estate to the lowest degree, etc.? And then, sir, yes, there is a man in Westmoreland, and Johnny Armstrong they do call him. There, now, you plunge at once into the subject. You have no previous narration to lead you to it. The next two lines in that ode are, I think, very good. Though fanned by conquest's crimson wing, they mock the air with idle state. Here let it be observed that although his opinion of Gray's poetry was widely different from mine, and I believe from that of most men of taste, by whom it is with justice highly admired, there is certainly much absurdity in the clamour which has been raised, as if he had been culpably injurious to the merit of that bard, and had been actuated by envy. 
Alas, ye little short-sighted critics, could Johnson be envious of the talents of any of his contemporaries? That his opinion on this subject was what, in private and in public, he uniformly expressed, regardless of what others might think, we may wonder, and perhaps regret, but it is shallow and unjust to charge him with expressing what he did not think. Finding him in a placid humour, and wishing to avail myself of the opportunity which I fortunately had of consulting a sage, to hear whose wisdom I conceived in the ardour of youthful imagination, that men filled with a noble enthusiasm for intellectual improvement would gladly have resorted from distant lands, I opened my mind to him ingeniously, and gave him a little sketch of my life, to which he was pleased to listen with great attention. I acknowledged, though that educated very strictly in the principles of religion, I had for some time been misled into a certain degree of infidelity, but that I was come now to a better way of thinking, and was fully satisfied of the truth of the Christian revelation, though I was not clear as to every point considered to be orthodox. Being at all times a curious examiner of the human mind, and pleased with an undisguised display of what had passed in it, he called to me with warmth, "'Give me your hand. I have taken a liking to you.' He then began to descend upon the force of testimony, and the little we could know of final causes, so that the objections of, why was it so, or why was it not so, ought not to disturb us, adding that he himself had, at one period, been guilty of a temporary neglect of religion, but that it was not the result of argument, but mere absence of thought. After having given credit to reports of his bigotry, I was agreeably surprised when he expressed the following liberal sentiment which has the additional value of obviating an objection to our holy religion, founded upon the discordant tenets of Christians themselves. For my part, sir, I think all Christians, whether Papists or Protestants, agree in the essential articles, and that their differences are trivial, and rather political than religious. We talked of belief in ghosts. He said, Sir, I make a distinction between what a man may experience by the mere strength of his imagination, and what imagination cannot possibly produce. Thus, suppose I should think that I saw a form, and heard a voice cry, Johnson, you are a very wicked fellow, and unless you repent you will certainly be punished. My own unworthiness is so deeply impressed upon my mind that I might imagine I thus saw and heard, and therefore I should not believe that an external communication had been made to me. But if a form should appear, and a voice should tell me that a particular man had died at a particular place, and a particular hour, a fact which I had no apprehension of, nor any means of knowing, and this fact, with all its circumstances, should afterwards be unquestionably proved, I should in that case be persuaded that I had supernatural intelligence imparted to me. Here it is proper, once for all, to give a true and fair statement of Johnson's way of thinking upon the question, whether departed spirits are ever permitted to appear in this world, or in any way to operate upon human life. He has been ignorantly misrepresented as weakly credulous upon that subject, and therefore I feel an inclination to disdain and treat with silent contempt so foolish a notion concerning my illustrious friend, yet as I find that it has gained ground it is necessary to refute it. The real fact, then, is, that Johnson had a very philosophical mind, and such a rational respect for testimony, as to make him submit his understanding to what was authentically proved, though he could not comprehend why it was so. Being thus disposed, he was willing to inquire into the truth of any relation of supernatural agency, a general belief of which has prevailed in all nations and ages. 
but so far was he from being the dupe of implicit faith, that he examined the matter with a jealous attention, and no man was more ready to refute its falsehood when he had discovered it. Churchill, in his poem entitled The Ghost, availed himself of the absurd credulity imputed to Johnson, and drew a caricature of him under the name of Pomposo, representing him as one of the believers of the story of a ghost in Cock Lane, which, in the year 1762, had gained very general credit in London. Many of my readers, I am convinced, are to this hour under an impression that Johnson was thus foolishly deceived. It will therefore surprise them a good deal when they are informed, upon undoubted authority, that Johnson was one of those by whom the imposture was detected. The story had become so popular that he thought it should be investigated, and in this research he was assisted by the Reverend Dr. Douglas, now Bishop of Salisbury, the great detector of impostures, who informs me that after the gentlemen who went and examined into evidence were satisfied of its falsity, Johnson wrote in their presence an account of it, which was published in the newspapers and gentlemen's magazine, and undeceived the world. Our conversation proceeded. Sir, said he, I am a friend to subordination, as most conducive to the happiness of society. There is a reciprocal pleasure in governed and being governed. Dr. Goldsmith is one of the first men we now have as an author, and he a very worthy man, too. He has been loose in his principles, but he is coming right. I mentioned Mallet's Tragedy of Elvira, which had been acted the preceding winter at Drury Lane, and that the Honourable Andrew Erskine, Mr. Dempster, and myself, had joined in writing a pamphlet, entitled Critical Strictures Against It. That the mildness of Dempster's disposition had, however, relented, and he had candidly said, We have hardly a right to abuse this tragedy, for, bad as it is, how vain should either of us be to write one not near so good. Johnson why, no, sir, this is not just reasoning. You may abuse a tragedy, though you cannot write one. You may scold a carpenter who has made you a bad table, though you cannot make a table. It is not your trade to make tables. When I talked to him of the paternal estate to which I was heir, he said, Sir, let me tell you, that to be a Scotch landlord, where you have a number of families dependent upon you, and attached to you, is perhaps as high a situation as humanity can arrive at. A merchant upon the change of London, with a hundred thousand pounds, is nothing. An English duke, with an immense fortune, is nothing. He has no tenants who consider themselves as under his patriarchal care, and who will follow him to the field upon an emergency. His notion of the dignity of a Scotch landlord had been formed upon what he had heard of the Highland chiefs, for it is long since a lowland landlord has been so curtailed in his feudal authority that he has little more influence over his tenants than an English landlord, and, of late years, most of the Highland chiefs have destroyed, by means too well known, the princely power which they once enjoyed. He proceeded, "'Your going abroad, sir, and breaking off idle habits, may be of great importance to you. I would go where there are courts and learned men. There is a good deal of Spain that has not been perambulated. I would have you go thither. A man of inferior talents to yours may furnish us with useful observations upon that country.' His supposing me, at that period of life, capable of writing an account of my travels that would deserve to be read, elated me not a little. I appeal to every impartial reader whether this fanciful detail of his frankness, complacency, and kindness to a young man, a stranger and a Scotchman, does not refute the unjust opinion of the harshness of his general demeanour. 
his occasional reproofs of folly, impudence, or impiety, and even the sudden sallies of his constitutional irritability of temper, which have been preserved for the poignancy of their wit, have produced that opinion among those who have not considered that such instances, though collected by Mrs. Piozzi into a small volume, and read over in a few hours, were in fact scattered through a long series of years, years in which his time was chiefly spent in instructing and delighting mankind by his writings and conversation, in acts of piety to God, and good-will to men. I complained to him that I had not yet acquired much knowledge, and asked his advice as to my studies. He said, Don't talk of study now. I will give you a plan, but it will require some time to consider of it. It is very good in you, I replied, to allow me to be with you thus. Had it been foretold to me some years ago that I should pass an evening with the author of The Rambler, how I should have exulted! What I then expressed was sincere from the heart. He was satisfied that it was, and cordially answered, Sir, I am glad we have met. I hope we shall pass many evenings and mornings together, too. We finished a couple of bottles of port, and sat till between one and two in the morning. He wrote this year in the Critical Review the account of Telemachus, a mask, by the Reverend George Graham of Eton College. The subject of this beautiful poem was particularly interesting to Johnson, who had much experience of the conflict of opposite principles, which he describes as the contention between pleasure and virtue, a struggle which will always be continued while the present system of nature shall subsist, nor can history or poetry exhibit more than pleasure triumphing over virtue, and virtue subjugating pleasure. As Dr. Oliver Goldsmith will frequently appear in this narrative, I shall endeavour to make my readers in some degree acquainted with his singular character. He was a native of Ireland, and a contemporary with Mr. Burke at Trinity College, Dublin, but did not then give much promise of future celebrity. He, however, observed to Mr. Malone, that though he made no great figure in mathematics, which was a study in much repute there, he could turn a note of Horace into English better than any of them. He afterwards studied physic at Edinburgh, and upon the continent, and I have been informed was enabled to pursue his travels on foot, partly by demanding at universities to enter the lists as disputant, by which, according to the custom of many of them, he was entitled to the premium of a crown, when luckily for him his challenge was not accepted, so that, as I once observed to Dr. Johnson, he disputed his passage through Europe. He then came to England, and was employed successively in the capacities of an usher to an academy, a corrector in the press, a reviewer, and a writer for a newspaper. He had sagacity enough to cultivate assiduously the acquaintance of Johnson, and his faculties were gradually enlarged by the contemplation of such a model. To me, and to many others, it appeared that he studiously copied the manner of Johnson, though indeed upon a smaller scale. At this time I think he had published nothing with his name, though it was pretty generally known that one Dr. Goldsmith was the author of an inquiry into the present state of polite learning in Europe, and of The Citizen of the World, a series of letters supposed to be written from London by a Chinese. No man had the art of displaying with more advantage as a writer, whatever literary acquisitions he made. Nihil quod tegitit non ornavit. His mind resembled a fertile but thin soil. There was a quick, but not a strong, vegetation, of whatever chance to be thrown upon it. No deep root could be struck. The oak of the forest did not grow there, but the elegant shrubbery and the fragrant parterre appeared in gay succession. 
It has been generally circulated and believed that he was a mere fool in conversation, but in truth this has been greatly exaggerated. He had no doubt a more than common share of that hurry of ideas which we find in his countrymen, and which sometimes produces a laughable confusion in expressing them. He was very much what the French call an untordi, and from vanity and an eager desire of being conspicuous wherever he was, he frequently talked carelessly without knowledge of the subject, or even without thought. His person was short, his countenance coarse and vulgar, his deportment that of a scholar, awkwardly affecting the easy gentleman. Those who were in any way distinguished excited envy in him to so ridiculous an excess that the instances of it are hardly credible. When accompanying two beautiful young ladies with their mother on a tour of France, he was seriously angry that more attention was paid to them than to him, and once, at the exhibition of the Fantoccini in London, when those who sat next him observed with what dexterity a puppet was made to toss a pike, he could not bear that it should have such praise, and exclaimed, with some warmth, "'Pshaw! I can do it better myself!' Note. He went home with Mr. Burke to supper, and broke his shin by attempting to exhibit to the company how much better he could jump over a stick than the puppets. End note. He, I am afraid, had no settled system of any sort, so that his conduct must not be strictly scrutinized, but his affections were social and generous, and when he had money he gave it away very liberally. His desire of imaginary consequence predominated over his attention to truth. When he began to rise into notice, he said he had a brother who was Dean of Durham, a fiction so easily detected that it is wonderful how he should have been so inconsiderate as to hazard it. He boasted to me at this time of the power of his pen in commanding money, which I believe was true in a certain degree, though in the instance he gave was no means correct. He told me that he had sold a novel for four hundred pounds. This was his Vicar of Wakefield. But Johnson informed me that he had made the bargain for Goldsmith, and the price was sixty pounds. And, sir, said he, a sufficient price, too, when it was sold, for then the fame of Goldsmith had not been elevated, as it afterwards was, by his traveller, and the bookseller had such faint hopes of profit by his bargain, that he kept the manuscript by him a long time, and did not publish it till after the traveller had appeared. Then, to be sure, it was accidentally worth more money." Mrs. Piozzi and Sir John Hawkins have strangely misstated the history of Goldsmith's situation and Johnson's friendly interference when this novel was sold. I shall give it authentically from Johnson's own exact narration. I received one morning a message from poor Goldsmith that he was in great distress, and as it was not in his power to come to me, begging that I would come to him as soon as possible. I sent him a guinea, and promised to come directly. I accordingly went as soon as I was dressed, and found that his landlady had arrested him for his rent, at which he was in a violent passion. I perceived that he had already changed my guinea, and had got a bottle of Madeira and a glass before him. I put the cork into the bottle, desired he would be calm, and began to talk to him of the means by which he might be extricated. He then told me that he had a novel ready for the press, which he produced to me. I looked into it and saw its merit told the landlady I should soon return, and having gone to a bookseller, sold it for sixty pounds. I brought Goldsmith the money, and he discharged his rent, not without rating his landlady in a high tone for having used him so ill. Note. It may not be improper to annex here Mrs. Piozzi's account of this transaction, in her own words, as a specimen of the extreme inaccuracy with which all her anecdotes of Dr. Johnson are related, or rather discoloured and distorted. 
I have forgotten the year, but it could scarcely, I think, be later than 1765 or 1766, that he was called abruptly from our house after dinner, and returning, in about three hours, said he had been with an enraged author, whose landlady pressed him for payment within doors, while the bailiffs beset him without, that he was drinking himself drunk with Madeira, to drown care, and fretting over a novel, which, when finished, was to be his whole fortune, but he could not get it done for distraction, nor could he step out of doors to offer it for sale. Mr. Johnson, therefore, sent away the bottle, and went to the bookseller, recommending the performance, and desiring some immediate relief, which, when he brought back to the writer, he called the woman of the house directly to partake of punch, and pass their time in merriment. Anecdotes of Dr. Johnson, page 119. End note. My next meeting with Johnson was on Friday, the 1st of July, when he and I and Dr. Goldsmith supped together at the Mitre. I was before this time pretty well acquainted with Goldsmith, who was one of the brightest ornaments of the Johnsonian school. Goldsmith's respectful attachment to Johnson was then at its height, for his own literary reputation had not yet distinguished him so much as to excite a vain desire of competition with his great master. He had increased my admiration of the goodness of Johnson's heart, by incidental remarks in the course of conversation, such as, when I mentioned Mr. Levitt, whom he entertained under his roof, he is poor and honest, which is a recommendation enough to Johnson. And when I wondered that he was very kind to a man of whom I had heard a very bad character, he has now become miserable, and that ensures the protection of Johnson. Goldsmith attempted this evening to maintain, I suppose from an affectation of paradox, that knowledge was not desirable on its own account, for it often was a source of unhappiness. Johnson. Why, sir, that knowledge may in some cases produce unhappiness, I allow. But upon the whole, knowledge, per se, is certainly an object which every man would wish to attain, although, perhaps, he may not take the trouble necessary for attaining it. Dr. John Campbell, the celebrated political and biographical writer, being mentioned, Johnson said, Campbell is a man of much knowledge, and has a good share of imagination. His Herinniptus Redivivus is very entertaining, as an account of the hermetic philosophy, and as furnishing a curious history of the extravagances of the human mind. If it were merely imaginary, it would be nothing at all. Campbell is not always rigidly careful of truth in his conversation, but I do not believe there is anything of this carelessness in his books. Campbell is a good man, a pious man. I am afraid he has not been in the inside of a church for many years, but he never passes a church without pulling off his hat. This shows that he has good principles. I used to go pretty often to Campbell's on Sunday evening, till I began to consider that the shoals of Scotchmen who flocked about him might probably say, when anything of mine was well done, Aye, aye, he has learnt this of Cowell. Note. I am inclined to think that he was misinformed as to this circumstance. I own I am jealous for my worthy friend, Dr. John Campbell. For though Milton could without remorse absent himself from public worship, Johnson's works, 7, 115, I cannot. On the contrary, I have the same habitual impressions upon my mind, with those of a truly venerable judge, who said to Mr. Langton, Friend Langton, if I have not been at church on Sunday, I do not feel myself easy. Dr. Campbell was a sincerely religious man. Lord McCartney, who is eminent for his variety of knowledge, and attention to men of talents, and knew him well, told me that when he called on him in a morning, and found him reading a chapter in the Greek New Testament, told me that when he called on him in a morning, 
he found him reading a chapter in the Greek New Testament, which he informed his lordship was his constant practice. The quantity of Dr. Campbell's composition is almost incredible, and his labours brought him large profits. Dr. Joseph Wharton told me that Johnson said of him, he is the richest author that ever grazed the common of literature. End note. He talked very contemptuously of Churchill's poetry, observing that it had a temporary currency, only from its audacity of abuse, and being filled with living names, and that it would sink into oblivion. I ventured to hint that he was not quite a fair judge, as Churchill had attacked him violently. Johnson! Nay, sir, I am a very fair judge. He did not attack me violently till he found I did not like his poetry, and his attack on me shall not prevent me from continuing to say what I think of him, from an apprehension that it may be ascribed to resentment. No, sir, I called the fellow a blockhead at first, and I will call him a blockhead still. However, I will acknowledge that I have a better opinion of him now than I once had, for he has shown more fertility than I expected. To be sure, he is a tree that cannot produce good fruit, he bears only crabs. But, sir, a tree that produces a great many crabs is better than a tree which produces only a few. In this depreciation of Churchill's poetry I could not agree with him. It is very true that the greatest part of it is upon the topics of the day, on which account, as it brought him great fame and profit at the time, it must proportionately slide out of the public attention, as other occasional objects succeed. But Churchill had extraordinary vigour both of thought and expression. His portraits of the players will be ever valuable to the true lovers of the drama, and his strong caricatures of several eminent men of his age will not be forgotten by the curious. Let me add that there are in his works many passages which are of a general nature, and his Prophecy of Famine is a poem of no ordinary merit. It is, indeed, falsely injurious to Scotland, but, therefore, may be allowed a greater share of invention. Bonnell Thornton had just published a burlesque ode on St. Cecilia's Day, adapted to the ancient British music, viz. the salt-box, the jews-harp, the marrow-bones and cleaver, the humstrum or hurdy-gurdy, etc., Johnson praised its humour, and seemed much diverted with it. He repeated the following passage, In strains more exalted the salt-box shall join, and clattering and banging and clapping combine, with a rap and a tap while the hollow side sounds, up and down leaps the flap, and with rattling rebounds. I mentioned the periodical paper called The Connoisseur. He said it wanted matter. No doubt it has not the deep thinking of Johnson's writings, but surely it has just views of the surface of life, and a very sprightly manner. His opinion of the world was not much higher than that of the connoisseur. Let me here apologize for the imperfect manner in which I am obliged to exhibit Johnson's conversation at this period. In the early part of my acquaintance with him, I was so wrapped in admiration of his extraordinary colloquial talents, and so little accustomed to his peculiar mode of expression, that I found it extremely difficult to recollect and record his conversation with its genuine vigour and vivacity. In progress of time, when my mind was, as it were, strongly impregnated with the Johnsonian ear, I could, with much more facility and exactness, carry in my memory and commit to paper the exuberant variety of his wisdom and wit. At this time Miss Williams, as she was then called, although she did not reside with him in the temple under his roof, but had lodgings in Bolt Court, Fleet Street, had so much of his attention, that he every night drank tea with her before he went home, however late it might be, and she always sat up for him. 
This, it may be fairly conjectured, was not alone a proof of his regard for her, but of his own unwillingness to go into solitude, before that unseasonable hour at which he had habituated himself to expect the oblivion of repose. Dr. Goldsmith, being a privileged man, went with him this night, strutting away, and calling to me with an air of superiority, like that of an esoteric over an esoteric disciple of a sage of antiquity, I go to Miss Williams. I confess I then envied him this mighty privilege, of which he seemed so proud, but it was not long before I obtained the same mark of distinction. End of section 27